Well, thank you so much for having me. I've uh, been looking forward to it, and I'm so glad the Lord worked that out. Um, I was, uh, as I said, 16 years at Grace Church, and it was an incredible privilege um, to be there and, and to learn and, and to grow. And, and the point came where finally, after all those years, I had this overwhelming desire to, to take what I had learned and, and go help a church somewhere. And so began to search for that and, and shared my heart with John uh, MacArthur, our pastor there, senior pastor, and what, what my desire was. And so uh, he was a great help in that. But uh, one thing led to another and stumbled upon this little church in Winston-Salem. And so uh, I had been candidating for two or three months, and I'd never done that before. When I made my decision to do that, I didn't even know how to make a resume. I had to go on the Internet and figure out how to do that because every ministry opportunity I've ever had in my life, the Lord just sort of put me in it, and, and one thing led to another, and there I was. So I candidated and learned quickly that I did not care for the candidating process. And... Uh, you know, and sending resumes out and different things and had a spreadsheet and trying to figure out, you know, how to tell if that would be a good church for me to go to. And and was pretty tired of that even after a couple of months. And so somebody told us about this little church in Winston-Salem that was looking for a senior pastor. So, you know, I added that to my list. But uh, something intrigued me when I went on the website because I did learn to do that. Go on a church's website and if there's a staff man there or anything at all where they recommend books, check on that part. Look, see what their recommended books are, because you can tell a lot about a church by that. And so there was a young associate pastor there and uh, checked his books. And boy, he read all the same people I read. And so that intrigued me. And a couple of days later, totally unrelated to the person who recommended this little church to us, that we hardly knew, but nevertheless, they said, yeah, I've got a relative in that church and they're looking for a pastor. Two days later, another person we hardly knew said, I know a church in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, that's looking for a pastor because I have a relative there. And so that got my attention again. And uh, I decided that instead of sending resumes and everything else, I was just going to call that associate pastor and let's let's talk. So I did. I called him one morning. I said, you don't know me and I don't know you, but uh, you're looking for a pastor and I'm looking for a church. And. And I uh, told him where I was from. And, of course, he was very familiar with the ministry at Grace Church and had, in the past, had come to some of my seminars at Shepherd's Conference. And I didn't know that. But nevertheless, uh, he said, yeah, I'll tell you about our church. And they were going through some difficult times and some splits and all that. And, and uh, yet the Lord was pushing the church the right direction. So he said, basically, we're going to end up with a group of people that are unified, wanting to go the same direction and be biblical and here's what we're looking for. We're looking for a pastor who affirms these six things. He affirms expositional preaching. Number one. Number two, he affirms the authority and sufficiency and inerrancy of the word of God for all things, including counseling. He affirms the doctrines of grace and God's sovereignty. He'll take us from congregational to elder rule. He teaches uh, biblical liberty versus legalism. And he believes in the practice of church discipline if it's if it's ever called upon in the life of the church. So I'm hearing all that. And I'm going, well, wow, <laughs> those are the kind of issues that pastors lose their lives over, you know, trying to establish. And here you've got a small group of people that are all affirming those things. And all I could say was after he told me the story of their church and where they were and they were about to face another split, actually two weeks after I called him before it got to that good point, uh, I told him that in a way I can't explain 
my heart is interested in this ministry. And uh, one thing led to another, and that desire grew. And over the next uh, three or four months, um, the Lord orchestrated us candidating there and, and then eventually moving there. So it's been a great joy to be the uh, pastor along with that young man who's still there and uh, in the small church and uh, see the Lord uh, grow. And I feel like a, a, a new kid out of seminary and starting over and learning how to be a, a pastor and and take all I've learned and help shepherd people. And, and just so grateful for the opportunity to serve him in that way. Um, and again, just so thankful for all that I was able to experience. And I remember definitely when Dave and his family moved there and, and uh, his ministry there at the college and what a great ministry that is at the Master's College. And uh, so now here we are kind of not too far away from one another, a few hours, and have friends here in this church. And so I feel very much at home. So again, thank you. <clears throat> it's a joy to go anywhere and find people who love Christ and who share the same love for the Word that you have. And you can fellowship with people like that even though you've never met them before. There's an immediate bond where you're closer than you are with some of your own family members who don't know Christ. And you can go to family reunion and don't sense that kind of joy at all and almost kind of glad when the family reunion is over so you can get back to your, your real family, your brothers and sisters in the Lord, you know, that, that love the same things you love. So, so thank you just for the opportunity to fellowship with you. Occasionally, when I'm studying a passage of Scripture, uh, there's something about that passage that overwhelms me, I think, with its, its practical application. It may not even be the direct application of the passage, but instead, uh, perhaps what it, you might call a secondary application that, that catches my attention because of, of how it applies to something about life. And such is the case with the passage we're going to be looking at tonight and tomorrow morning. And that is 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 14 to 21. So I invite you to join me in God's Word, 1 Corinthians 4, 14 through 21. I want to give you a little bit of the, the context. I'm sure you know it, but just to get us all tracking the same direction before we look at some marks of a spiritual leader that flow out of this passage. Let's give our time to the Lord and then we'll, we'll do that together. Father, we're so grateful for so many things. We think about who you are and your character, uh, Lord, your perfections that uh, cause us to worship you and reverence you in our heart. We thank you most of all for our Savior, the Lord Jesus, uh, who, in whom we can know you and through whom we can know you, the God who created us. We thank you for his sacrifice that atoned for our sin a sacrifice that most importantly satisfied you, a God who's just, who hates sin. We thank you for the new life we have in Christ, for the purpose in living and for the clear conscience we have to know that our sins are forgiven. And Lord, we thank you for your word, the written word that teaches us about the living word and the written word that, that is a very uh, lamp into our, our path that lights our way and teaches us about you and who you are and what you desire from us. So, Lord, I pray that you would, that your spirit would enlighten us tonight. And as we look into your precious word, that you would keep us from error. You would cause us to think rightly. And most of all, that you would, we would leave here this weekend loving Christ more and loving your word more and even more motivated to live a life for your glory. So bless our time together in our Savior's name. Amen. 
Well, First Corinthians four is a, an important an important juncture in this book. It is a passage, verses fourteen to twenty one, that is making a a final statement about, especially about the arrogance and the pride of the Corinthian believers. Uh, and there's a final illustration here, really, of, of the contrast between these Corinthians and the Apostle Paul. Uh, definitely, it's a defense of the Apostle's own responsibility to confront that pride and, and the divisions that existed in that church, in that church body, because of the arrogance and the pride that was there. A defense of his own position that he had in their lives. But as we look at his statements here to this regard, we can't help but notice how he goes about dealing with these issues. How he goes about addressing these matters with the Corinthians. I personally was struck with this example that he leaves to us of what a true leader looks like. And what type of characteristics a leader ought to manifest. So that's the approach I want to take with you tonight and in the morning. Uh, I want to point out these uh, various traits in Paul and his approach to the Corinthians that end up being exactly what any leader should manifest, whether it's a leader in the church, whether it's a husband, a father in the home. Uh, Frankly, these four traits that we'll look at uh, would make you even a more effective leader in business. They're very, very practical things to see. So let's look at these principles together. I want to remind you something, though, and it's why we want to talk about leadership and a group of men. Just a reminder to you of what God's word says about that. From Genesis onward, we see God's pattern for male leadership. That was his design in the eternal counsels of his own will, that men would be leaders. If you look at the early chapters of Genesis, no doubt you see that men and women are, are equal in the sense that they're both made in the image of God. Uh, One is not more the image of God than the other. It doesn't take the two together to make the image of God. There's a great sense of equality, and and, uh, men have written on this subject uh, in great books out there today, Piper and Grudem and others who who have done great work to emphasize uh, what Scripture teaches about the roles of of men and women and what manhood and womanhood is all about. And so just to summarize some of those principles, yes, they're equal. Uh, my uh, wife does not uh, go through me to get to God in some way. She stands at the cross on the ground that's there equally just like I do. I tell people all the time, she doesn't go through me to get to God. She goes to God because of me a lot, but not through me. But yet at the same time, though there's equality, there is difference. And especially in the sense of roles, that's where you see that difference. That from God's design is that men be leaders. And we see that in the fact that man was created first, in the fact that the woman was created to be his helper, the fact that Adam is the one who named the woman and those who read those books and saw that knew what that meant, that there was a sense of authority there that he had. The whole human race was named after man and not woman. And that's not just something that existed after the fall. That was before the fall. And yet after the fall, God is held the man accountable both in God's image, equal, but man the leader, not based upon his worthiness, not based upon our superiority in any way over women. It's just God's design, not a result of the fall. Selfishness entered into our existence at the fall and distorts all that. But it didn't create all that. It was God's design from the very beginning that men be leaders. 
So that's why I want to talk about that this weekend, to challenge each of us to be the kind of leader that glorifies God. Now, in this passage, like I said, we see a conclusion to four chapters is what we call it. Four chapters where Paul has been addressing these issues in the Corinthian church, the issue of arrogance uh, in contrast to the humility of the apostles. Uh, this arrogance and a sense of self-sufficiency that was there. They, they had a misunderstanding of the gospel, a depreciation of the gospel and the preaching of Christ. And they had this love of worldly wisdom, some of them did, that they wanted to bring into the, to, to mix in with the teaching. And that contributed to uh, divisions and this party rivalry where they were following different human leaders. So Paul is addressing all that. Four chapters in which he's addressing that. Chapter 5 turns a corner. And from chapter 5 onward, Paul begins to deal head-on with several specific issues that were going on, even answering some questions that they had in letters that they wrote to him. But before he does that in chapter 5, he completes this section of confrontation of all that wrong thinking and the issues that were in their hearts. So we're going to examine the closing of this fourth chapter, but in it, note these four marks that a spiritual leader should manifest. I've chosen four words just to summarize these four marks. And we'll look at it two tonight and two in the morning. The first word is this. The first trait, the first characteristic of a spiritual leader is concern. Concern, verses 14 and 15. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 14, I do not write these things to shame you. Again, all this that he's been saying to confront them on all these problems. I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. There is a definite tone change here in Paul's writing. There's been some a tone of sharpness along the way here in these four chapters. But now there is this. Change from sternness and sharpness to a tone of tenderness and genuine concern. He says in verse 14, I don't write these things to shame you. Just so you'll know, the Greek word there means to literally uh, turn something around or to invert it. That's what the word means. But it came to mean over time this idea of moving something, not just to turn it around, but to, to move it in a certain direction. And over time then became a word that would describe moving someone to shame or what we might call manipulate somebody. That's the idea. He says, I'm not writing these things to manipulate you, to work on your feelings, to try to get you to change in some way. This gives us some insight into his motive of why he was confronting them. I mean, what's motivating him to write all these words of confrontation and exhortation that's in these first four chapters? He's not trying to manipulate them. There's something else. It was out of love for them as his sons, as his children. Despite their waywardness, Paul had this deep sense of love. He had this deep sense of concern for these Corinthian believers. He does desire that they change. He genuinely desires to warn them, but it's for their own good. He says, I admonish you. That's a, that very important word in, in the New Testament, that nutheteo, that means to place into the mind. It can be translated admonish. It's a word that can even be used to express what a parent does. 
when a parent uh, uh, gives admonition to a child, instruction to a child, he's it's a parenting word. It's a very Pauline word. He uses it many, many times. It's a word that carries the idea of warning somebody, but also instructing them, giving them information that they need, but, but warning them and admonishing them in the process. <clears throat> There's a noun form of it that's used in a very familiar verse to you. Ephesians 6, verse 4, where it says that a father is to bring his child up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That noun there, the instruction, is the noun form of this verb. So what is my point? His aim is to bring truth to their minds and let them see what they really were as contrasted with what they imagined themselves to be. It's a rebuke, but he's saying it's a rebuke that's the proof of my love for you. That's why I'm doing it. Reminds me of Proverbs 27, verses 5 and 6. Better is open rebuke than love that is concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a what? A friend. That's the idea here. Paul says, I'm not coming to you because I'm not for you. I'm doing this because I, I love you. I'm concerned about you. I care about you. It was this kind of loving concern that Paul expressed for those that he had authority over that really established the sense of involvement in their lives. And that is crucial to be effective as a spiritual leader. The sense of involvement where people that you're leading know that you're doing this because you actually care for them. You want what's best for them. That's what puts you in a position to effectively lead someone. Is they know that you love them. In verse 15, he introduces a metaphor to make this point of how he felt about them. He's causing them to conjure up in their minds some imagery here that would illustrate what his motives were, that he's coming to them as a father. So he says, if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers, he's drawing upon something that they were familiar with in their culture, this idea of a tutor. It could be also be translated a guardian. We don't really have at least not in a way that I'm familiar with, an equivalent of this common in our culture today. But I'll tell you what this was to them. A tutor or a guardian was usually a slave. It was a slave, though, that was given a constant, the constant attendant of a child of the family. In other words, the slave would be in charge of the child's education. And therefore, the word is used in the New Testament sometimes as instructors. It could be translated that. This slave would stay with this child throughout the day. The slave would accompany the child or even children to, of especially well-to-do parents, accompany those children to and from school every day to protect them. This slave would be appointed to tutor this child and even discipline this child to instruct him in proper conduct, manners, chide the child whenever it was necessary. To correct him, the slave would be in charge of guarding this child from danger, guarding the child from evil influences. Uh, the, the slave would uh, even give instruction in correct speech and grammar and diction. 
He would help the, I put it in today's maybe culture, he'd help the boy do his homework. He would listen to his Awana verses. He would take him to Little League baseball practice. This child would, would be around this tutor all the time. If the child was sick, this tutor in their culture, this guardian would be responsible for nursing that child back to health, tending to his needs, every need, until they became an adult. So Paul is borrowing this from their culture to say that to the Corinthians that in Christ, in other words, as Christians here, you may have had many such people like this from a spiritual standpoint, teachers in your life. You may have had many kind of teachers, people who have been the spiritual guardians, people who have been impacted your life, he says, but they don't have many fathers. There's a difference. And they knew that. Yes, this slave was given a lot of responsibility. And this slave would spend a lot of time with a child as the guardian. But even so, that slave was still in a different relationship with the child than the relationship that the father had. The father was able to have a sense of intimacy with that child. The slave would be expendable. He could be replaced. The father could not. So Paul's point is to say, you understand how that system works in our culture. The difference between a tutor and a father. He says, I'm just telling you, you've had tutors along the way. Yes, God used them. But I'm telling you, I was your father. I loved you in a way that tutors and guardians don't. I loved you like a father. Literally, I was your spiritual father in Christ Jesus. And that's true. Paul was the very instrument the Lord used to bring these people to saving faith. I marvel at that. Here was Corinth, a wicked, wicked city of that day. Paul waltzes into the city. There's no work of God going on. What's he going to do? Well, he's got to come up with some church growth strategies of some sort to try to attract these people. No, he just comes in preaching the gospel, the message of the Christ. And you know what happened? People got saved. A church was formed. People are starting to grow. There's some issues in the church and he's dealing with them. Literally, he was their father in the Lord. His relationship preceded any other teacher's. He says, I look at you and I sense intimacy. It's a tender relationship. I am devoted to you in love. Paul is admonishing them all right, but he does it as a father. He even calls them in verse 14, my beloved children. He loved them. All the sharpness that was necessary in the things he had said was not due because he didn't care for them. It wasn't from an unfatherly spirit. It sprang out of this concern. This is a mark of a true spiritual leader. What motivates you to lead is a love for those you're leading. You see, a leader, a true spiritual leader, is not just in it for what he can get out of it personally. I know in fulfilling your role as a leader, there can be great joy in that. Knowing the Lord is utilizing you in some way to lead, whether it's in the church or whether it's at home, there can be joy in that. But the reality of it is you're not in it for what you can get out of it. You're not desiring to lead, especially take the church setting, not desiring to lead because there might be some potential recognition in some way. 
not desiring to leave because there might be some perks or some, some glory involved. Not desiring to be the leader in the family just because you can, so you can call the shots and control everybody. I'm the leader, so I can say jump and my wife and children just need to say how high. And then do it. No, a true spiritual leader is not thinking like that. A true spiritual leader is motivated by love, wants what's best. He's not only learned the joy of leading, but he's learned the joy of self-sacrifice. See, it's going to come out in self-sacrifice for those you're leading, in preferring others above self, in loving others, in being devoted to others. A spiritual leader gets great joying that and know that, that you've sacrificed yourself for others. A spiritual leader is someone concerned for the well-being, the spiritual well-being of those in your charge. That's what is the motivation that overrides every other potential motivation. I tell you, what an example for the spiritual leader in the home, the father. Some of you are fathers and you have children and you're leading them in the home. What a great example. I mean, the metaphor he uses is even drawing upon that kind of context. The father and a child. Because it's understood that a, surely a father should be loving his family and, and setting this example before them of devotion and concern and self-sacrifice and not be self-centered and self-focused. Who's ordained by God to be the leader in the family? The father is. The father is to take the lead in providing for his family. The father is to take the lead in protecting his family. The father is to take the lead in training his family and caring for his family. And so he chooses to do what's necessary in every single situation, every day. He chooses to do what's necessary to bring those things about for his family out of this love for those children, a love for his wife, a concern for the ones God has given to him. If that's not there, leadership then degenerates into something else. This is true whether it's in a, in a home. It's true in a church as well. If this is not there, this characteristics, it generates into something that's very worldly. And I would just mainly call it this, a domineering dictatorship. See, for some, that's their concept of leadership. This domineering dictatorship where the father ends up being this unkind, unsympathetic, uncaring Harsh, demanding, impatient person. And the list goes on. His leadership reflects that. Or, that's an example of self-focus. But there's also another example of self-focus. And that's the leadership is non-existent. It's just not there at all. That's an example of self-focus as well. In either case, whether it's a domineering dictatorship or it's just absent. In either case... Here's a person not motivated by love, not motivated by concern. True spiritual leader marked by concern that manifests itself in a tenderness and the way he goes about leading others. You know, the Corinthians actually weren't very lovable. You know, I mean, of all the kind of people that could be in churches that you're going to find it hard to love. I think it was the Corinthians. I mean, there were other churches that I could have understood Paul saying, I love you guys so much. 
Listen, Paul is expressing that kind of concern and love for people that were problems. I've heard some of the ones who have mentored me in my journey as a pastor say things like this, that as a leader, you can never view people this way, that there's a person that's just a problem with two legs on it. Sometimes as a pastor, I'm tempted to to think that way about people, especially in the church. You get a certain phone call from a certain individual and a phone slips given to you that someone called and maybe that first fleshly thought that goes through your mind is, oh, there's that problem with two legs on it. Not if you're a true spiritual leader. You're moved by compassion. A person has needs. You're concerned. Someone said this, until you're moved with compassion and by compassion, you're not ready to lead. Not ready to minister to someone else. Hold your place there for a second, though, and turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. There is another place that comes to mind where, again, you see the heart of Paul and how he cares for people. He's telling the Thessalonians what his ministry was like with them. Look at verse 7 of 1 Thessalonians 2. I wish I had time to really kind of go into the verses leading up to that because he he definitely paints the picture that he never came to them with some kind of self-focus. He was not ministering to them out of self. He says, But we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. I mean, there's hardly even a more tender scene than that, a nursing mother, that tender moment with her child. Having thus a fond affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God. He says, I didn't just give you data, but also our own lives because you had become so very dear to us. That's the kind of man the Apostle Paul was. Why was he a man of such great influence and impact? Because he manifested several leadership characteristics, and this is one of them. He loved people. He was concerned about them. Remember what Christ said about leadership? That it's not just lording over people. That's the way the Gentiles, the unbelieving world, thinks about it. Not just lording over people. Perhaps you can think of it in these terms. Talked about this many times to seminary students who are going to be leading churches. I've said this to to fathers and who are leading their family, especially to husbands in their leadership of their wife, especially to husbands. There's a couple of different illustrations of what your leadership looks like. You're either a shepherd or a cowboy. What's the difference? Well, a cowboy drives cattle. A shepherd leads sheep. Which one did Jesus use as an illustration of what he was like? He didn't say, I'm the great cowboy, you know, (laughs) that drives the cattle. I'm the the shepherd who leads the sheep. Husbands in the home, Ephesians 5, and all it says about loving your wife and sacrificing for her. Leadership in the home flows out of this. It flows out of genuine love for your wife, sacrificial love. But that principle applies to any leader, church, home. Like I said, I mean, there's a practical side of this that even applies to business. 
I mean, an owner, a leader in the business world where those around you know that you genuinely care for them. That stands out. In many places, it's rare. There's a second word. To be an effective spiritual leader, you should not only be manifesting concern, but a a second very important word, character. Character. To be an effective spiritual leader, there's got to be character manifested. And by character, I mean personal integrity. Personal integrity. Again, Paul has this incredible relationship with these believers. And in view of that, he exhorts them, he says in verse 16. I exhort you. That means I, I urge you, I beseech you to do what? To be imitators of me. You know, wow, well, that's a kind of an arrogant thing to say, Paul. <laughs> I mean, to tell these people, uh, you, you need to be like me. That sort of has a bad sound to it. Not if you understand what he means by it. It's not an arrogant statement at all. He's not trying to create, trying to create personal followers. In fact, hold your place there and look at chapter 11 of this book. You'll see a similar statement. And in chapter 11, you get the complete thought. Chapter 11, verse 1. He says there as well, Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. He says it in 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 6. Listen to these words. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord. You see, Paul's real desire here is that they imitate him only because he knew what his own, the the passion of his own heart was. The passion of his own heart was he wanted to be like Christ. He he wanted to model before them what Christ-likeness looks like. Now think about this city. He comes into a city. Uh, I mean, this is not like the South here in the United States, where there's churches on every corner and people grow up in Christian homes and so on and so forth. This is a completely pagan environment. I mean, converts who were coming to Christ, they were coming out of a completely pagan background. They would know very little about what the Christian life looked like. But they could see it. See it in whom? They could see it by looking at Paul. These Corinthians had not seen Jesus himself in the flesh. These Corinthians had no Bible as we've had it. What were they looking at then? To understand what the Christian life looks like. What this new creation manifests itself in. The Apostle Paul. They'd seen him. Young converts coming from ungodly homes. They could be learning truth. And they could also be seeing it lived out in the Apostle Paul. You know what? That's still true in our world today. In one sense, you have people coming to Christ who are first generations Christians. They weren't raised in Christian homes. That's going to be true of some of you. I mean, what a wonderful thing for young converts that as they're learning the Bible, as they're being taught truth, to see it lived out in older, wiser, godly people in the church. Young men seeing it lived out in godly men. Instructing them in truth, but seeing it modeled before them. That's an effective leader. That's powerful leadership. So back to Paul's statement. It's, it's not an arrogant statement. He's not saying literally, I'm trying to make disciples of Paul the Apostle. 
I just want them to imitate Christ. But even though it's not an arrogant statement, I still would admit to you it's still a very bold statement. Very bold. Because to make this statement, you've got to have some confidence. You have to have the certainty that if others look at your life, they will find Christ-likeness. Paul had that certainty. He knew that if they were pattering themselves after him, that they were in reality becoming like Christ. That, tells, that takes a great deal of confidence in your own personal integrity. So let's make it personal tonight. Can you say that? Can you say to other people, imitate me? Can you say to your wife, your children, can you say it to other people in the church here that you serve in? Examine my life all you want to. Examine my life and seek to imitate the things that you find there. The things I do and the things I say. Because I know that when you're doing that, you'll be learning what it means to follow Jesus Christ. Wow. You know, when I was studying this passage, 14 through 21, it's this verse that grabbed me the most. This is basically the central verse of the entire paragraph right here. It's the verse that caused me to, to look at this passage and go, wow. I mean, yes, it says some things about the problems they were having in Corinth, and that's the context. And, but I'm struck with the example that he's leaving here for spiritual leaders who are going to deal with problems like this in ages to come, especially as a pastor. I mean, there's application here to my life. And then another word began to come to my mind. The word... Consistency. Consistency. This is not the third word in your outline. It's just another word that goes along with character here. It's a synonym. Consistency also describes this same trait. It, because in essence, Paul could be depended on, you see. He could be depended on for his consistent walk in the Lord. That really is what integrity means. Our English word integrity actually flows out of the Latin word integer. And, uh, you know, all of us love math. And, and even if we've been out of school for decades, we remember everything we were ever taught. And we, and we definitely remember studying integers. And we know exactly what that means. So I hardly even have to tell you, but I will remind you, an integer is a whole number. That's what an integer is. It's not a fraction. It's not a decimal. It's a whole number. Integrity comes from that idea of an integer, a number that's a whole number. That's what integrity means. Wholeness. There's no part of your life that's inconsistent in some way. No matter which way somebody turns you, they're going to find the same thing. They look at you from this side or this side. The same consistent testimony, we might say it this way. Whatever they see in us on Sunday, they would see in us on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. Same character. Hold your place. Turn back to the left. Psalm 15. Psalm 15. You find this concept there in Psalm 15. Psalm 15. 
Psalm 15 is a wonderful psalm of David. It's actually a Q&A session. It's David asking the Lord a question and then the Lord's answer. It's a great question in Psalm 15, verse 1. O Lord, who may abide in thy tent? Who may dwell on thy holy hill? Just so you'll know, this is not talking about salvation. This is not talking about how can someone come to be in a saving relationship with you? I'm convinced after studying this, it's, it's something different than that. It's, it'd be a question like this, and I don't want to dumb down you know, the, the profound nature of truth in any way whatsoever, but you do tend to think in, in terms that you, how you would say something today. It's basically something like this. Lord, whom do you like to fellowship with? Who are the kind of people that you like to have over to your house? Who can come to your tent? And then God answers him. Tells him several things here. The first thing he says is a very broad statement that will summarize everything else in the list. It's very interesting to see the things that the Lord has answered. The things he looks for in people. But the first thing he says in verse 2 is, I'll tell you who. He who walks with integrity. He works righteousness, but he also speaks truth in the heart. It's not just words of, that are righteous, but there's words being spoken in the heart that's backing it up. He who walks with integrity. He who is consistent. He who is whole, has this sense of wholeness in his character. That pleases me. More than you could ever know. Some of you may have heard me use this illustration before because I've used it in so many contexts because it's been so applicable on this issue of integrity that it may have popped up somewhere along the way. But I'll use it again. Uh, it has to do with a particular sign that's in Los Angeles on a street called Nordoff. If you drive... In, West of Grace Community Church, there in what's called the Valley, the San Fernando Valley, which has about three million people in it, this valley. Grace Community Church sits sort of in the middle of all that. If you drive to the west down a street called Nordoff, you come to a university, CSUN, California State University, Northridge. And um, I'll never forget driving down Nordoff for the very first time, going west. The university was on my right. And out front, in front of the university, are the three, the four letters, C-S-U-N. And they're very unique letters. They're, they're three-dimensional letters that are molded out of some sort of substance, plastic or something, or stone. And they're on, if I remember right, they're on little, uh, little, little sticks sticking up out of the ground, I think, holding them up. These four letters, C-S-U-N, California State University Northridge. And I'd only been there in my first year, I think, when I drove by that. And I said, oh, this is where CSUN is. But then I began to think about this sign. I'm going, that, I don't know, that's kind of dumb to put a sign out there, C-S-U-N. You're only going to see that if you're driving west. If you're driving east, it's going to say NUSK. You know, <laughs> that wasn't real bright. What kind of university is this? You know, what are you going to learn here? Some of you have seen this sign. As you drive by it and you look back at it, 
It says CSUN. The letters are carved or molded or shaped or hewn in such a way, kind of a, they're kind of modern looking letters, that they say the same thing from both directions. Well, pastors are always looking for illustrations like that. But it did cross my mind. I said, well, you know, this kind of this idea of consistency, integrity. No matter which way you look at it, it says the same thing. That's exactly what integrity is. No matter which way somebody turns you, they're going to see passion for Christ. The desire to exercise self-control. Concern for other people. Go back to 1 Corinthians 11. Excuse me, 4. 1 Corinthians 4. Because something else comes out about this that to me is just... Mind-boggling, sobering. Because you see, it's one thing for each of us here tonight to imagine this about ourselves, to hear this and go, I think I'm okay. Yeah, I, I think I've got that. It's one thing for Paul even to imagine this about himself and to present himself this way. It's quite another to be able to confidently point to those who know you best and say, you can ask them. Ask them anything you want about what I'm like in my private life. That's essentially what Paul does in verse 17. He says in verse 17, For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy. And we know who Timothy was. Timothy was this young disciple that Paul poured his life into and and, and mentored. a, A young man that he loved so much and respected so much and that... Love and respect certainly was reciprocal. He calls him there, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. Now, we don't know much, actually, historically and biblically about Timothy's visit to Corinth. Nevertheless, we know that he went there on Paul's behalf. And Paul is essentially saying this. He says, when Timothy arrives, he is going to vouch for my ways. He says, he will remind you, verse 17, of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere and in every church. Timothy's going to come, ask him anything you want about me. He'll vouch for my ways. He'll verify that what I'm asking of you, I have first consistently myself lived out in every place I've gone. What a great principle. Let others defend you. That's a good principle to live by. So Paul could be depended on. His reputation of character and integrity was stellar. His integrity was was impeccable. This is a necessity for a good leader. And the reason is this. Ultimately, you can't lead somebody where you haven't gone yourself. You know what, what the greatest synonym for leadership is I'm convinced it's the word influence influence leadership at the end of the day is influence but the catch is the influence can be either good or bad you know it could be bad influence it could be bad leadership still influence or it can be influence toward godly character where those around you are influenced 
toward godly character. Because of your influence in their life, they're growing to be more godly. What an application this is to, to fathers, or spiritual leaders in the home. Can those closest to you vouch for your integrity? Are you consistent when it comes to your character? Can you be trusted in your walk with Christ no matter where you are or what you're doing? More importantly, can you say to your wife and to your children, imitate me? Others that are closest to you, imitate my spiritual character, my spiritual bent of my life, my habits. Imitate my priorities that I live by. Imitate my love. Again, I'm just saying this is really part of our job to be a mentor. Paul mentored Timothy. Fathers are to be mentoring and influencing their children. Fathers are to be living a life that their children can emulate and have a desire to emulate teaching them God's ways through their words, but far more importantly, through example. My own pastor in California said this about manhood and womanhood and masculinity and femininity and those kind of things. What it means to be a husband, a wife, a father, a mother. Really, all the Christian virtues, he said in a staff meeting one time, really, as we talked about these things, he said these things are more caught than they are taught anyway. They're more caught than they are taught You see, from the moment they're born, children are dependent. They're dependent on their parents for survival and care and guidance and teaching. And as they grow, they begin to copy their parents' life. That's a sobering thing to realize as your kids get older and you see yourself in them. They they, they learn a way of life. They learn truth. They adopt basic values. So it is so crucial to be trusted to be known for consistency when it comes to personal integrity. And that kind of consistency and that kind of personal integrity comes really one way. It's by making right choices daily and doing that over a period of time. That's how character develops. That's how it's recognized. It's making good choices, right choices, daily, And doing that over a period of time. I really am not trying to paint some sort of picture of perfection here. That really isn't the issue. I would say this. I've been around long enough in a marriage and as a father to know that really perfection is not what my wife and my children expect. They understand that. It's that other concept, direction. It's the direction. It's the path you're on. Do you know you even express your integrity and your character in how you handle your own failures? That manifests integrity. The humility that it takes to confess a wrong to a wife or a child or someone in the church on a committee or a team or uh, some other kind of group that you're ministering with. To be able to say that, you know what, what I did was unwise, what I did was wrong. I sinned, I was selfish. I didn't have my priorities in order. I was impatient with your mother, son, and you heard that. And it's not because I had a bad day and didn't get enough sleep last night. It's because in that moment in time, I was being very fleshly and not exhibiting 
Christ-likeness. I loved myself in that moment more than I loved the Lord and your mother. It's the humility that is expressed in that kind of confession. Seeking forgiveness where you've wronged others. So it's not perfection. I don't think anybody expects that. If they are, they, somebody really doesn't live in the real world. You know. By and large, people just want direction. They want to know how to live their life, what kind of path to be on. And they want to be led down that path by a godly person. They're, the world that people are desperate for this kind of, of character, this kind of godliness. I'm not talking about unbelievers. I'm talking about the people around you that you can influence even in your own home. So direction of your life. Make right choices daily and do that over a period of time. This is an axiom. Truth and time go together. Over time, the truth of who we are will be manifested. Truth and time go together. So it's the ability to say to my wife and my children or those around me, imitate me because I'm imitating in Christ. And the ability to say to others, ask my wife, ask my children, ask those employees who, whom I lead, ask the secretary, ask the people on the worship team, the setup team, whatever it might be. Ask them what I'm really like, especially ask those closest to me. They can vouch for my ways that I'm seeking to be like Christ. This is an incredible example. I mean, yes, I understand it's the Apostle Paul, you know, the super Christian, the super apostle. Um, but, you know, the, the, the encouragement I get is, is this, not, this is not something that's based upon his own natural ability. This is something that you and I can learn as well. The power of Christ working in us. I remember when I first came to Christ, I recognized just how selfish I was. I was raised in a pastor's home, so I certainly knew what the church life was all about. And as years went on, I was not even a bad kid, really. I mean, compared to everybody else I went to high school with, they all thought I was pretty good. People in the church, when we go over to their home, they didn't dread my family coming over, you know, because I was going to break things and tear things up. I was basically a nice kid. Some of the things that other teenagers did, I didn't get into. But at the same time, what was happening was growing hypocrisy in my life. And my heart was becoming more and more cold. And one of the manifestations of that was a self-focus where I really didn't care about others, you know. I really didn't love others. I really didn't have a concern about others. I had a concern about myself and how to promote myself. And so when the Lord did a wonderful work of grace in my heart, I remember this in the early months of that, of this overwhelming desire for the truth that I had learned all my life. I wanted it to impact my life. I wanted it to make a difference in how I lived. I mean, that was one thing I, I realized was different. But the area that came to me first was... The whole idea of love and loving others. Because I knew it was so selfish. <clears throat> and I remember praying this. Lord, help me to learn how to care for others. Help me to have a concern. I didn't base it upon this passage. I had not studied this passage. I just understood what Christ was like. Help me to learn that kind of loving concern for others. 
give me somebody that I really have to sacrifice. I remember literally praying, Lord, you know, cause somebody to call me like at 2 o'clock in the morning, you know, and they've got a flat tire or something, so I have to get up out of my bed. I was a young Christian. I'm just praying as practically as I knew how. You know, that made sense to me. That was something I didn't want to do. So I figured that's what I need to do. So give me one of those. Lo and behold, it must have been a month or two. I got a call. I don't know, two or three o'clock in the morning of someone who had broken down the side of the road, um, a close uh, relationship of mine, about an hour and a half away on the side of the freeway, and needed help. And uh, I remember being overwhelmed in that moment with, with this thought of, yes, yes, I need to do this. You know. That wasn't a one-shot battle for me. And in the years since then, I can be selfish. I'm constantly reminded in the ministry how self-focused I can be and how I can do things, uh, not for out of a motivation because I'm concerned about other people. Many examples have come up in my relationship with my wife where I've recognized once again what my, the tendency of my flesh is going to be. is going to always be fleshly. Flesh doesn't change. It'll always be that way. You give it an opportunity and it'll show you that. With my children, times where I disciplined out of, out of selfishness, where my motivation for taking care of this issue was that they were bothering me, and so it needs to stop and deal with it. Yeah, but why? It's a never ending battle. That you constantly have to deal with, you know, this this self-focus. I mean, it's like that little game at the uh, at the arcade. I don't know what you call it, but it's got this little gopher kind of thing that keeps, uh, or a mole or something. It keeps coming up out of these holes, and you keep whacking it, you know, with a hammer. It's kind of like that, you know. It's selfishness, and you know, keep at it. Maybe you have to pray like that. I'm sure you should. We should. Lord, help me. Help me to have this kind of compassion. Help me to be so concerned about my, my wife and her needs above my own that I'm manifesting this kind of concern. So help me, help me be so concerned for my children and their own lives and not myself that I'm willing to, if it's con- confront them, if that's what I need to do, I'll do it. But it's out of a heart of motivation, motivated by love for them. I want what's best for them. Lord, build that kind of, of compassion and concern in me for others. This is a powerful way to influence others. You've got to be very honest about your character and the direction that your life is on. Uh, it's very easy for our hearts to grow cold and to get lackadaisical and to allow things to encroach into our lives, you know, worldly thinking in some way and love for things of the world, whether it's um, moral things, whether it's dishonesty, whether it's pride. Yeah, these things can encroach in. Whether it's a lack of priorities in your life and you're living your life for what counts with the time that you have. Yeah, we have to take note of that. We have to take stock. We have to make an, an examination of our lives. So we can say to the Lord, Lord, build this within me. Build this kind of integrity. I mean, that's the kind of person who can abide in your tent, who can dwell in your holy hill. I want to be that kind of person. I want to be the kind of person you'd want to come over because you want to spend time with. Lord, I want to be the kind of person that I could say, ask my wife, ask my children, ask them what I'm like, 
And it's fine for them to say, no, he's not perfect. But you know, at the end of the day, he loves Christ. He loves holiness. He loves the word of God. And even if he varies from that in moments of time, he always comes back to that. He always comes back to those things, the things that count priorities in life. Yeah, that's my dad. That's who he is. That's my husband. I can trust him for that. He's consistent. We'll look at these other two traits tomorrow, and they're equally important. Let's pray about these things tonight. Father, we do want to manifest this kind of this kind of character, this kind of integrity, Lord, a, a wholeness in our lives that where there aren't these gaps, there aren't these worldly handles in our lives that people can grab and say, aha, yeah, look at that. Hypocrisy. We confess that in moments of time we are like that. But Lord, we deep within who we really are in Christ, we desire what is right. We desire to manifest integrity and character because we want to have influence on others. We want to influence our wives and our children. We want to be able to say and to know that our wife is a more godly woman because you put me in her life. My children are understanding godliness more because I'm their father. That there are people in this church that are growing in Christ because of my example. Lord, I want to be able to say that. So Lord, do your work, the work that only you can do by your spirit, using truth to convict me as that searchlight of searching out those things that I maybe have grown cold toward or been lackadaisical about. And I need to have a passion ignited once again for holiness, for purity, for consistency, living by biblical priorities, knowing we do not know what tomorrow holds. And Lord, we confess tonight our selfishness and self-focus. How in moments of time we can live as if the whole world revolves around us. That our wife was given to us to make us happy. Our children were given to us to make us happy. So Lord, help us once again think about the example of Christ who do not come to to be served, but to serve and to give His life, or to wash feet, to be a shepherd who cares for sheep, to esteem others as more important than ourselves. Lord, we want to be men like that. So Lord, again, do that work in our hearts that only You can do. Lord, we desire it. We desire change. We want to be like Christ. Lord, if there's someone here who doesn't have that desire, Lord, I pray that you would bring them to that place. In our Savior's name, amen.